0: And with such themes upon our hearts, we turn to Luke chapter 9 this evening. Luke chapter 9 and to the remaining verses of this chapter. continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke. We come now to the closing verses, as I've said, of Luke chapter 9. And so we… I may just uh, remark someone… I had noted this early in my study for last Lord's Day, but someone then came to me and said about the fact that there's, there's a part of their Bible missing in what we were considering last Lord's Day evening. So if you have… Uh, one of the more modern versions, then you may have noticed also that uh, part of verse 55 and verse 56 is not in your Bible. And as I was, of course, there's reasons for that that I'll not get into now, but um, I believe it ought to be there. Uh, when you read of Christ on one other occasion when he rebukes his disciples, when he rebuked Peter for saying that he ought not to go to Jerusalem, he ought not to lay down his life, and Christ then rebukes him. It tells us why he rebuked him. It explains the reason for the rebuke. If you read your modern translation, you will see that you're left without the explanation for the rebuke. You don't know why he rebuked him or what he said in terms of the rebuke. So as we have it in the authorized version, I think it's correct and right because Spirit of God gives us the insight, gives us the understanding. Uh, despite what the older uh, manuscripts may have, we stick to the majority text. And here we have this text. So that's just a kind of prefatory remark. I wasn't even intending to say that, I just came to mind again with it before me, uh, knowing that perhaps there are more than one that was wondering about that. So we're reading from verse 57 tonight, Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And it came to pass, that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. May the Lord write his word in our hearts, and inscribe it there where it is remembered, where it is heard, and also done in obedience to it for his name's sake. Let's pray and seek the Lord. God, we pray for help, as always, in thy word. Thy word is truth, and thou hast given it not merely for our intellect, but to transform our lives, that we would worship the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Dear God, we are weak, we are frail. We can at times hear the word but not do it. We fall so far short. Tonight we pray that thou will take us a little further in our obedience in Christ likeness. May every child of God know what it is to love thee more. If, that, if that's accomplished, if everyone here walks away with a true deepening of their love for Christ that would be a great gift to us all indeed. So grant that for Jesus' sake. He deserves it. He earned it. He ought to have all of our allegiance. We pray then that thou wilt win our hearts even through our meditation on thy truth. And should there be one unsaved, someone unsure, dear God, this night, meet with them and give them what they need. Hear prayer. the Holy Spirit fall upon preacher and listener. May this meeting be owned of the Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Between Hawaii and Australia, you'll find a little place, there are a number of islands if you head that direction, a number of islands, but one in particular that is known today as Vanuatu. In 1839, two Christian missionaries John Williams and James Harris from the London Missionary Society headed off to perform their missionary work on one of those islands. They arrived on the shores of one of those islands endeavouring to win the indigenous peoples for Christ. And almost instantly, almost as soon as they arrived, both men were killed and eaten by those that lived there. Over the coming years, different missionaries would go with the same heart and desire. They would go to these South Sea islands with the desire to bring the gospel to them and win them for Jesus Christ. Some were chased away. Others saw the gospel prosper in a wonderful fashion. One man, John Getty, arrived in one of the islands in 1848. And when he died in 1872, the entire island had renounced their idols and all their false customs and had given themselves to serve the living and true God. In the midst of that time, in 1858, less than 20 years after the first missionaries had been martyred, another man was to labor in this region, one of the islands, a man by the name of John Patton. Three months after Patton arrived, his wife gave birth to their son. A few days later, she died of a fever, and a few days after that, their son also passed away. Fearing what the indigenous peoples would would do to their bodies, when he buried them, he slept on their graves, watching over them, that they would not be dug up or in any way desecrated. Patton knew what it was to count the cost. For Patton, the call to follow Christ meant more to him than life and comfort. To those that were critical of his decision to travel so far away and endeavored to reach such a vicious people that could take his life to those that were critical of his decision to go there, he said, If I die here in Glasgow, I shall be eaten by worms. If I can but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms, for in the great day my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Patton has been an inspiration to countless missionaries and preachers of the word since he went all those years ago to reach souls for Christ. His life is worthy of your study and consideration. This man had learned what it is to be a true disciple, a real follower of Christ, to count the cost. And as we come to this point in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, As he is making his way now to Jerusalem, that the intention of the flow of the narrative is to show us that this is the ultimate destination, this is the goal, he is going to Jerusalem, he is going to suffer, he is going to be betrayed, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die. As all of that is gaining momentum, Luke endeavors to drive home the point to his reader, particularly Theophilus, no doubt, the one whom he is writing to the one that he's thinking about as he's pulling this all together, he's really saying, as you come to the end of Luke 9, he's saying, Theophilus, you need to get this. You need to get what it is to be a disciple for Christ. You need to understand the sacrifice involved. Here is what it means. Now, in the verses that we have read, we are given three men, three individuals that in some way have an exchange with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is partly recorded here for us is found also in Matthew chapter 8. Now, Matthew chapter 8 is some time ago. So, it is evident then that as Luke is recording this, he has deliberately left out those details, delaying his recording of these so that he might combine them and drive home the point at this juncture in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go there just for a moment to Matthew chapter 8 so you are aware of The passage and what it says, Matthew 8, verse, well, we'll read from verse 18. Matthew 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about Him, He gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto Him, Master, I will follow Thee whithersoever Thou goest. And Jesus saith unto Him, The foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. There are a couple of interesting details that are given here. First of all, the the man that is first noted is a scribe, a certain scribe. So we're given a little more detail as to him. And then also in the second account It is one of His disciples that comes with this request. So, I want you to keep that in mind as we proceed in considering what Luke records for us in verse 57 and following of Luke 9. This passage that we have been going through in Luke 9, in one sense really is all about discipleship. Now, we haven't focused on it in a deliberate fashion in every account, but on occasions we have because you can't miss it. In the opening verses, we have the mission of the disciples when they are sent out for the first time to preach and to heal those that are sick and so on. In verses 18 and following up, we have the confession of the disciples. Here's what the disciple must confess about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23 and following, we have the resignation of the disciples, the the whole aspect of self-denial, of denying oneself daily, taking up the cross and following Christ, and so on and so forth. You have various aspects of discipleship in Luke chapter 9. So the entire chapter, from a certain perspective, is about what it means to follow Christ. So as we come to the end of the chapter, it's driving home the point. It is closing with the same theme. The verses themselves are relatively straightforward, But they pack a punch that I hope we do not miss tonight as these three men are enlightened to the true nature of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the reality is maybe we need a fresh wake-up call as to what that means as well. We can find ourselves getting complacent, endeavoring to make the Christian life as easy as possible, to dictate what it looks like according to our own terms, to essentially, say to the Lord, here's, here's how I think the Christian life should be lived. I hope this is okay with you. Well, as we look at these verses tonight, we look at them under the title, Will You Follow Christ's Example? Will You Follow Christ's Example? Because I think, and giving it that title, I think that's really what Luke is driving at. What these men that come and these, these various Exchanges tell us is that they fall short of what is so perfectly exemplified by Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect, obedient Son of the Father. He is the one who knows what it is to be sold out for a singular cause, for the glory of God. And so, as these men are to learn, there's more to it than simply understanding discipleship as they had come to understand it, at least to this point. So as we think about this, as we consider this idea, I want us to see, first of all, that there is deprivation. There is deprivation. Verse 57 and 58. It came to pass that as he went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air of nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head it appears that the man is open to a degree of deprivation here. He, he understands there's, there's a certain degree of deprivation when it comes to following Christ, because as I've noted already, this man was a scribe. In other words, this man was used to being the, one of the most preeminent individuals within any given crowd of people. He was a man that people looked up to, a man that had studied for years and therefore had gained the right to be looked upon with esteem and recognition. He was a man that taught, instructed, a man that others looked up to. He was a scribe. But you can see from the language here that he is willing to be deprived somewhat of this position that he had become accustomed to. Lord, I will follow thee, whithersoever thou goest. I am prepared for my life not to be so much about people following me and my teaching. I am prepared to follow you and your teaching. So, I mean, this is encouraging. It's encouraging for him to recognize that in being a disciple of Jesus Christ, he is stepping down from the role of teacher to student. He is willing to, to give up whatever the prestige he already possessed, whatever individuals would come to him for instruction. Now he is, in one sense, renouncing that to a degree in order that he might be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. It shows us something as... I say, is, is, is a measure, it's is encouraging because he has status, and, and men in their existence will have a certain measure of status at times in their lives. And Christ calls us indeed to, to lay all of that at his feet. That whatever the world says about us, we are to lay ourselves low, whatever titles we are given, we are to fall down before Christ, put our faces in the dirt, as it were, and recognize him, Lord, as Lord of all. So he gets something of that. The question is, was he willing to go from a settled abode to a transient life where he may have no real home? There are those that are willing to sacrifice for Christ in a measure like this man. Sacrifice the role as being teacher in order to be student. But there was something more required of him. I have no doubt that there is in part at play in these verses for all these men, the Lord Jesus discerning their hearts. Like the rich young ruler, the Christ discerns the heart. He knows the one point that will test the profession of love and devotion to the cause of Christ. There are those that are willing to sacrifice in a measure. They will will see what they do in the frame and context of the Christian faith as a sacrifice. Even calling oneself a Christian may be perceived as a sacrifice. I'm making a sacrifice. I'm identifying as a Christian. Well, this man was willing to go that far as well. But there can still be this holding back of dictating to the Lord the terms of our service. And so the Lord tells him, well, well here's what this means. You want to follow me wherever I go? Be aware of this, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of man hath not where to lay his head. So not only was the man open to a degree of deprivation, we see that Christ expands on the degree of deprivation. Christ expands on it. He helps this man to see what exactly is involved. Now as I've already noted, Christ has spoken of discipleship. Go back to verse 23 just to refresh our memories. This chapter, verse 23 He said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. Christ is not shy to deal with this matter of discipleship and what it means to be truly deprived as a disciple. And part of what's involved is this willingness to, in going anywhere, is renouncing to a measure possessions and the things that tie us to this earth. Turn for a moment to Hebrews 13. Hebrews chapter 13. The book of Hebrews is written with, obviously, Jews predominantly in mind. And The danger of some Jews and what they were facing was the temptation to renounce Christ and go back to the old ways, to the old practice of Judaism. And so this is a polemic effort to help them see you dare not do that. If you do that, you'll be giving up far more than you may realize. But when you read in Hebrews 13... Verse 13, we are exhorted, let us go forth therefore unto Christ without the camp, bearing his reproach. It is a call to walk that path that Christ walked, go outside the camp, go outside the city walls of Jerusalem, get beyond that place that is so precious, get away from there to the one who is the true possession of our souls, go to him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Leave behind Jerusalem. Leave behind everything that is precious to you. Leave behind that which is familiar to you. Verse 14, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And how true that was. How true that was in terms of prophetic fulfillment. Those Jews that were attached to Jerusalem... In a few short years, we were, were to see the entire thing destroyed, razed to the ground, burned with fire, everything that mattered to them, that place they made their pilgrimages to, would utterly fall. And the warning here is, we don't have a continuing city here. We seek one to come. Don't find value in the material. Don't give yourself to these, these things that seem to, to matter, these the bricks and mortar and homes and places and, and have this attachment to things in this world. This is, this is not what it's about. Get beyond the walls. Get beyond the captivity of being bound to the things of this life. Get beyond that. Go to Christ. Go outside the camp. Go to the hill called Calvary. Go to the cross and die. Bear the reproach of Christ. Christ. The writer of the Hebrews in one sense is really carrying on the theme of discipleship that Christ dealt with in Luke 9. If you're really going to come after me, you're going to have to go outside the city walls. You're going to have to go outside the camp. You're going to have to leave that which is familiar. Oh, the foxes have their familiar holes. And the birds have their familiar nests. They have a place that can say, that's home. That's home. But the Son of Man, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. He has no fixed attachment to this earth. And He's going to be driven from the city outside the camp to bear the sins of His people upon His own body. And discipleship follows the same model. Discipleship, true discipleship, loosens us from the ties, lets us go from the harbor of the material world, causes us to be moved into a position of sacrifice, it doesn't mean to say that we, we live an ascetic life and everything material is sinful. God has given us all these things richly to enjoy, and they're to be received with thanksgiving, but we are not to be so tied to them that we are hindered in our service and that we come up short when it comes to discipleship. So the Lord Jesus expands on what deprivation is really included when it comes to following Him. The warning is essentially this, beloved, be careful how deep you drive in the tent pegs. You are a pilgrim, but pilgrims have their tents, and there can be the temptation to to drive those tent pegs in really deep because you intend to stay there. You have no intention of moving. this is not what life's all about the disciple of christ realizes that here we have no continuing city we are living for a heavenly jerusalem we are living to fill the citizenry the citizenry of that city calling men to repentance to live for jesus christ It is a city that will not be destroyed, unlike Jerusalem. And so again, our Lord Jesus would warn us, don't don't give yourself to things where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up treasure in heaven. So what if even foxes have their holes and birds have their nests? The man who made the greatest difference in human existence, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had no home. No fixed abode. And Christianity says, I see the value in that. Oh yes, across God's creation, many of the Lord's creatures have homes, have holes and nests, places where they rest, where they live, where they build and the place from which they provide and raise their children and so on. But Christ reserves the right to say, leave it, leave it all. Give it up, surrender it, walk away. He reserves the right to say to a disciple, it's time. I know you have your plans You have your goals and your ambitions. I know deep down in your heart you have this reservation and feeling about the value of your life and what it might look like in relation to the material. Christ says no. For many He says no, no. No, I will uproot you and I will send you and you will follow me If you're really going to follow me wherever I send, wherever I go, you may find yourself without even really any long-term fixed abode. Passages like this should challenge you. Having moved, I don't know how many times... there can be a sense in which you get to a point and you say, well, Lord, I've, I've gone here, I've gone there, I've moved this place, that place, all over the place. Obviously now this is fixed. Now I have every intention of staying here. This is not an announcement of intention to leave. But I can't but read these verses and recognize the right of Christ to say it's time to go. My allegiance to Him and your allegiance to Him requires an absolute resolve that when He says go, you go. Or if you want to go, but He says stay, you stay. And it doesn't so matter, doesn't matter so much about all the particulars, the how and the why and the so on. I know the world doesn't understand it. The world doesn't get it. They don't begin to really grasp what this kind of life looks like or what it is to live this way? But don't you become like them. Christ calls us to count the cost. Flip over just for a moment to Luke 14. Luke chapter 14. We'll come to these verses in due course, God willing, but Luke 14 verse 27, we'll just take a moment to... Read these verses, Luke 14, verse 27. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he helps us understand the importance of contemplating whether or not you're really prepared to be a disciple of Christ. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it, begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he send an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Count the cost. Can you forsake all that you have? Does Christ retain the right to take away from you everything that is precious and valuable? For John Patton, it was clear, I don't care whether I'm eaten with worms or by cannibals. But I'd far rather be eaten by cannibals, having done something for Christ, than nothing, live a long life only to be put in the ground, having achieved nothing of any meaning. Christ may call you to deprivation. I'm not hiding, I'm not skipping over these verses, I'm not trying to, in an effort to make Christianity as palatable as possible, say to you, hey, he will give you everything you ever desired in your fleshly, carnal hearts. No, He may not. He reserves the right to strip you, to deprive you of everything that you look on and say, hey, they all have it. Why can't I have it? And He says, yes, it's not for you. It is not for you. How come others... Others are called to preach and they get to stay in their own country. They get to stay in their own locality. Mom and dad are close by. Grandparents are close by. It's all, it's all very convenient even amidst the, the service of the Lord. How come others get it? But the Lord would say, yes, but it's not for you. It is not for you. The whole point of this is that he left glory. Christ was deprived of a place we can't even begin to imagine. We hardly know what, what heaven's really like, it's beyond description. He stepped out of it, deprived of it. And the disciple is not greater than the master. But secondly, there's preoccupation. There's preoccupation as well. There has to be a sense of the preoccupation of the disciple. Verse 59, he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, go thou and preach the kingdom of God. In this case, it's slightly different. The the narrative has it here. Christ goes to him and encourages him to, to follow him, just as he did with Philip and Peter, Andrew and Levi. Follow me. What sweet words these are. But they're challenging as well. And I want you to note here that the man appears willing, but is delaying. He appears willing, but is delaying. He said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Suffer me first. It's not an outright rejection of the invitation. Indeed, the response is somewhat promising, is it not? We might be inclined to commend this man because Christ says, follow me. And he says, Lord, suffer me first to go. He's not saying no. So he indicates a, a willingness, a willingness to identify with Christ There appears to be some measure of willingness to to follow Him, and in that sense, modern Christianity would pat Him on the back and say, great, great, so glad to hear that you're not an outright atheist, or you're not in any way opposed to the gospel. And so we would be encouraged by this kind of language. Well, of course, we're only encouraged by this language because we feel to see the reality of what's going on. We don't have a right. We do not have a right to hesitate in obedience to Christ. Hebrews twelve, twenty nine says, Our God is a consuming fire. Not was is. He is a consuming fire. That means the Son of God, Jesus Christ, reflects this in His divinity, in His character. He is a consuming fire. Now, He is not a consuming fire to His obedient people, to those that He loves and shed His blood for. But nonetheless, He is a consuming fire. So the question is, how do I know whether or not He appears to me as a consuming fire? How can I be assured? Well, you can be assured because you don't play games with His commandments. You don't play games or excuse your, your sins. You don't make light of them. You don't live life without a sense of the need of ongoing repentance. Repentance you're grieved by your shortcomings. It's not that you're absent of shortcomings. That's not going to be the case for any of us. But it bothers you. It bothers you that you fall short. It bothers you that you're not going on with God the way that maybe you once did or the way you know you ought. It's a problem, it's a grief of heart. Your soul is grieved. You're thinking about it even now, knowing even as I preach, as you analyze and ponder and evaluate your own life, you're you're grieved by the fact that you're not living for Christ the way you ought. And so there ought to be then a, a repentance that arises from the heart, a grief, a sorrow, a sense of, Lord, help me, forgive me, move me, add more grace Help me in all these areas that you call me to live for you. But, but, but this, this man is standing before Christ, the consuming fire. Oh, he's not going to evidence it at this point. It's not going to be here, manifest it in any way, but it doesn't change who he is. He is still a consuming fire. And when men... Play games with his commandments and imagine that they have a measure of control in the execution of those commandments, that they can delay obedience to Christ unrepentantly. They don't know who they stand before. We we really don't know who God is. One of the reasons we are where we are today in the church and farther afield as far as society is concerned is because there is an undeniable reality that God in His felt presence in man's ability to discern His presence and fear His name has dissipated from what has been known in the past. was a time the unregenerate had a fear of God. Their conscience bore witness to them. And they're very aware of the fact that they lived in the presence of God, even though they had no professed allegiance to Him. That's not where we are today. And it's not just real outside the church, it's true inside the church. We need a visitation of God God manifesting Himself to us. You say, preacher, I don't know what you mean. He has given us His truth. Is that not sufficient? His truth is sufficient for reform, but without the combination of God coming down, God in some way making Himself known to us. I can't explain it. All I know is that I've read about it, I have sensed it to a degree, and I know that the greatest gift to any community is a a felt sense of God. Men know who God is. They know that He is there. And God's people live with an awareness of the one that they lived before. Their consciences are particularly sensitive because they, they sense that they're in the, the very presence of God. Now, one of the most illustrative passages in the Scriptures concerning this, and there are many, but one that comes to mind in relation to being helped and in, in, in the difference that it makes in terms of obedience to Christ and allegiance to Christ is that account of Isaiah 6. When the Lord unveils Himself to Isaiah... When this preacher, this prophet of God, has an experience that he would never forget. And the pre incarnate Son of God unveils his glory, comes into him to some degree. And his lament, his lament is that which everyone else ought to have been saying. Everyone else ought to have seen the fact that they were calling evil good and good evil, as is recorded for us in the early part of the prophecy and all all the iniquity and sins that were going on, but the prophet had to come to a point where he said, Woe is me! Before I can really call men to repentance out there, I need to see what needs to be repented of in here. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There's something of that that we don't experience. There's something of that that God has withdrawn from us. Men and women, those who profess faith in Christ, having a real sense that they live in the presence of God. Bidden or not bidden, God is there. But we drift from one Sabbath to the other and are barely cognizant of the fact that the Lord is there. And so we watch and think and say and do without any awareness of the repercussions and the consequences of our actions. And yet we call ourselves Christians. That's the case for this man. Verse 59 Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Here's how it looks. I'm willing, at least I'm expressing at this point I'm willing, but I have this other thing. I don't want to be preoccupied with your call to follow you. I have another thing on my mind, which brings us in to consider Christ expands on what it means to be preoccupied with His cause. He expands on what it means to be preoccupied with His cause. He doesn't just want His disciples to say, I'll follow you. When I'm ready, but when He says, follow me, you get up and you go. Now, there are different ways to understand verse 60. Let the dead bury their dead. Either let the unregenerate, the dead in sins, bury the dead, who have literally died physically, your father in this case, or, what the man was really asking and requesting was that he would wait until his father would die before he follows Christ. So, when he's saying, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father, he's, it's, it's an expression of, I want to wait until I have fulfilled this duty and then I will follow you. What it is not saying... What it is not saying, because I have heard this, I've had discussion with individuals that when you talk about funerals, they they don't really see the point in going to them, attending them. And one of the reasons is, and I've had it quoted to me, is is this verse: "The dead bury their dead." I'm a follower of Christ; I don't have to go to funerals. <laughs> That's not what it means. Read the book of Genesis, and you find actually a remarkable emphasis upon the place of burial. Remarkable, actually, given all that has to be detailed in the whole history of redemption being weaved out through the book of Genesis, it's remarkable that there's this significant emphasis upon the place of burial. So much so that actually Joseph, by faith, says, my bones need to be taken back there when you go. The place of burial and the the burial of our loved ones is important. It's a a dignified duty of those that are left behind to bury their loved ones. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. There's instruction there that you don't get anywhere else. The overarching point of Christ here in the passage we are looking at is is not saying the real Christian doesn't bury their loved ones, but the real Christian can't delay what is vital for what we believe is important. The real disciple will not delay what is vital for what we believe is important. When Christ says, go, you go. Follow you follow, even though you may have important things to tend to. There will be times when the Lord will reserve this right. He will hold you away, hold you back from events you would love to participate in. I've made mention before, my own experience being in Australia and my grandfather passing away and, and feeling this... Uh, The whole family, the whole family were there around his bed. Everyone, all the children, all the grandchildren. They're all there. Except me. And I so wanted to be there. But I couldn't be. I had to be where I was, serving Christ. Christ. And the Lord gave strange comfort as I ministered there so far away from the event. I was preaching. I was going through the life of Joseph on Wednesday nights. And I got word one Wednesday, your grandfather's gone downhill and we've all been called to the hospital. And what am I studying to preach that night? Jacob gathering his sons around him before he would die. And the next week, when he died exactly a week later, I was preaching on the death of Jacob. And it was a sense like the Lord was saying, you are where you're meant to be. Let me underline it again. Christ calls His disciples to understand that they cannot delay what is vital for what we believe is important. What is vital is that you go and preach the kingdom of God. And you do it now because I've called you to it now. Follow me. I'm calling you so that you go and preach the kingdom of God. As I said going back to Matthew 8 this individual was already a disciple but he had a long way to go and so do we all we are to be preoccupied with one thing why because so it was for Jesus Christ he was preoccupied with one thing preaching the kingdom of God that was his whole calling As has been said by others, God had one son and he made him a preacher. And his whole preoccupation was to get the truth out. That was his calling. And so for those who call to discipleship, there's an aspect of this that they can't run away from. An aspect of this that must be true with them. When he calls you to go, you go. You follow. Whatever else seems to be going on. Thirdly, there is resolution. Resolution. There's resolution, verse 61, and another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This man appears willing, but is hesitating. I will follow thee, but… I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. There are similarities here to the one we've just looked at, but there is a distinction as well. This man isn't so much taken up with a false preoccupation, a wrong preoccupation, but he is lacking resolve. This is his problem. He lacks resolve. And so, really, what's at heart here when he says, Lord, I'll follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. There's a sense of lacking resolve to go on, to keep following Christ to the full extent and degree. There's a, then this felt hesitation, a draw to the family, to home, to that which is precious to him. But really at the heart of it, and I think you get this more from the language of Christ, because when He says, and looking back, it's that sense of not being resolved to go forward. Constantly looking back to what you're leaving behind, looking back to what you've sacrificed, what you're walking away from. It's this lack of resolve that is at the heart of this man's problem. So Christ then expands on what it means to be resolved. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't participate in my kingdom if you have this kind of spirit. This is extremely strong language. You are cut off. You are not part of my kingdom if you have this spirit. Now, there are some that had to learn this a hard way and in a way that could never be reversed. In Luke chapter 17, verse 32, we have that very poignant little text, remember Lot's wife. Remember her. Why? Because as they're escaping Sodom, flee for thy life. Look not behind thee, they're warned. Go to the mountain lest thou be consumed. That's the warning. Look not behind thee. Get out of here. Run for your life. Lot's wife looks back. And Christ adds that. He puts that in, remember Lot's wife, and then immediately then says, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. He ties in Lot's wife and her example with discipleship. The true disciple doesn't look back. The true disciple isn't looking to the past life, to the ties to the world, to the family, to the home, to the memories, to the things that bind us to this earth, the true disciple, he's always just following Christ, looking to Christ, to follow Him means you keep fixed on Him, you're walking in step with Him, like a military fashion, you're, you're keeping step, you're, you're walking orderly, you're looking forward, you're looking to the captain of your salvation. It doesn't matter what's going on behind. So Jesus says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God if you're the kind of person who starts in the course but then looks back. There's something amiss in your profession, in your Christianity. If you're constantly, constantly endeavoring to traverse life as a Christian, looking back, looking over the wall, looking at how the world lives, how your friends live that don't know Christ, how your work colleagues live, The the apparent joys and successes and prosperity and what they have and what they can do, their liberties. Oh, they seem to have so much fun at the weekend. Why is it that the Christian is called to a life of purity? They all seem to be having so much fun in their immoral ways. You're looking behind. You're, you're looking across. You're, you're, you're pining for something that Christ says, stay away. In fact, don't even look at it. Run, get out of there. Keep your eyes on me. Let me first go bid them farewell. Now, oh, there's a place for farewells. But that's not what's really going on here. As I say, Christ perceives the heart. He's looking back. There's a lack of resolve. Christ never did that. He never lacked the resolve. You go back up to verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's not looking back. He's not saying, I wish I could turn back. I wish I could go back. I wish I could reverse all of this. He's not saying that. It doesn't come into His mind and heart. It's not gripping His soul. He is resolved to do the Father's will. And this is the point. This this whole passage is, is driving home. If you're really a disciple, it's not in a way that you dictate the terms. Discipleship is likeness to Christ. It is mirroring Christ. So it's looking at this. It's recognizing these things, these details, these, these examples that are presented to us. That we're, we're willing to deprive ourselves because Christ, Christ lived a life of deprivation for our salvation. We're willing to be preoccupied with one thing and be considered mad. The only thing you ever talk about is is Christ. Where are you going at the weekend as you go to the hairdressers? I'm going to church. Every time you're in here, you're always going to church. Do you not do anything else? (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. Depends what your life is like (laughs) in contrast with some of ours. But, but there's this, this, this difference, there's a distinction, that's the point. They're expecting you to say that you're, you're going to this place where there's alcohol, and this place where there's parties, and this place where there's something else going on. They're expecting that, but you're not. You don't go there, and they don't get it, they don't understand. We are preoccupied with one thing. You go there Saturday morning maybe, and what are you doing today? Oh, I'm, I'm doing neighborhood Bible club. You, you, and you're talking about things that relate to the gospel. and it, it seems like you have a preoccupation. And this is the thing. The world will have you preoccupied with anything but the gospel. If you're preoccupied with collecting stamps, they don't see a problem with that. They say, oh, really? What's, what's interesting about collecting stamps? What's the oldest stamp you have? I collect coins. I have train sets that fill up the entire basement of my house. You can have all these interests and all these things and the world will look on and say that's fascinating, that's interesting. I had a grandfather who was into that or whatever. It's all fine. It doesn't matter how trivial. This is an amazing thing. It doesn't matter how trivial it is. They're okay with it. But if you're preoccupied with the gospel, they think you're mad. You're dealing with life and death, heaven and hell. The fact that people will perish forever. And they think that is the wrong thing to be preoccupied with. Get out of this world. Get your mind out of the folly and the myopic perspective of life that is so so commonplace in this world. And get your mind saturated with passages like this that, that teach you, no, no, young person, this is what it means to be a disciple. You will live your life with resolve to live to the glory of Christ, whatever that means. As I close, for what it's worth, it was verse 60 that God used in my own life. It was the first text that gripped me in such a way that I sensed for the first time in weeping before the Lord that God was saying... I want you to go and preach the Word. I want you to be a preacher. Go, thou, and preach the kingdom of God. Leave everything else aside. Go and preach. Forget about all the other important things. Give yourself to the vital thing. Preach. And it plays on what we considered this morning, that the need of our world is more preaching. It is more preaching, not less. It is more preachers, not fewer. We need preachers. We need more preaching. This this is what we are to be preoccupied with. This is what is needed in our day. I don't care who is in the White House I don't care how bad things appear to be. There is hope when God is raising up preachers. So, Christian, will you follow Christ's example? Where are you tonight with the Lord? Where are you in your walk? Are you going on with the Lord? Are you? I was talking with the young people this morning and trying to help them understand how important it is to grow early, to advance in spiritual matters early in life, how vital that is. To have a sense of what it is to wait before God, commune with God And know God for yourself, not just by the letter, but by the Spirit. That no matter how busy the young person is, it's only going to get worse. And so if you're going to know God, it has to be now. And I tried to describe it, and it seems very crude, but I I tried to describe it in some way of what it means to know God when you're young and what that can do for the rest of your life. And here's how I described it. Those of you who run or exercise in any way, you know that often what you're doing is you're competing against yourself and you have your personal best. And so if you're a runner, you have your PB and if you ever go out running and you're thinking about your personal best and Maybe as you get older you realize that it seems to become more and more distant and difficult to attain there, but that's always the figure. That number, whatever it is, bench presses, running five kilometers, whatever it is, that number sticks in your mind. And you measure yourself against it because that's your, that's where you attained, that's where you got to, that's what you were capable of. And there's a sense, if in your early days, in your early years, you get to know God. You know what it is to wait before God, to call upon God, to be sold out for God, to know the presence of God as you wait upon Him, that that becomes your PB. You know what it's like. And then you have this up here. Rather than down here, you have this up here. You know what it's like to backslide. Because I think the personal experience of most Christians is so far removed from what God has got for us and what Christ has purchased for us, they don't even know when they're backslidden. They don't even know when they're not walking with Christ because they've never really enjoyed power with God, walking with God, being zealous for Christ. They don't know. They don't know what it is to shut out the world, to get before God, to fast and pray over burdens in your heart. They have no idea. It's like it's, it's, it, it just doesn't mean anything. But Christian, Christian, listen to me. If just one of you understands this, Go on with God. Press on with God. Understand what it is. Wait on God. Let God work in your heart and you will never forget it. And your whole life, when you begin to decline, you'll know you're declining because you're not there. You're not there. You're nowhere near your PB. That's crude. That is a crude example, but I hope it is penetrating because that's what matters, that you understand Christ takes His people at times into Gethsemane, onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And forever in your life, you remember I was with Him on the Holy Mount. Some of you know it. You know it in terms of of public worship. You know it because you've you've been sitting in these very pews in this very room and you've known the coming down of God and your entire religious experience, your entire experience of the worship of God is compared to those halcyon days of the presence of Christ. And you're dissatisfied. You can't get away from that sense. Do it again, Lord. This is what we need. Christ calls you to a sold out life for Him. Then He will give you joys that this world doesn't even know exist. And He will replace all the trinkets with His presence. And you'll realize I was made. I was made for fellowship with him. And So your longing will be like Paul's. I don't care. I don't care what the world has to offer. My prayer is this, that I might know him. May the Lord help us. Bless his word. Let's bow together in prayer. Christian, the Lord can do for you what I can't do for you. You still yourself before His presence in this place. This is an opportunity of just stilling your heart and recognizing maybe that distance that has developed between you and the Lord. The Lord can and will restore the years the locust have eaten. He will happily do so. It will work on your heart and bestow upon you joy joy unspeakable there's no one that can say that can come to the Lord with an excuse like the individuals that we read of tonight there is no excuse it's time it's time for us all seek the Lord and if you are unsaved as yet, though I trust you know you don't need my help. If you need any instruction from me, let me know tonight. I'll be glad to sit down, open the word and pray with you. Don't perish. Don't die in your sins. Don't make excuses for not following Christ. Such people are not fit for the kingdom of God. Our God, we, we need help. We confess it tonight. We need more of the... We don't need anything else. We just need more of God personally and corporately. Lord Jesus, come to thy waiting people. Come to thy needy bride. Console her with thy word. Revive her by thy grace. Oh, Lord, help us Help us to be sold out for Thee, to have done with lesser things. Thy knowest our hearts, where we all are. Oh, that we may know Thee. Be with us in our fellowship, discussion. Bless the food downstairs. Go with us into the rest of this week. Fill us, oh, fill us with the Holy Ghost. Make us gossipers of the gospel, winners of souls. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with Thy people now and evermore. Amen.